You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, episode number 77. Hey guys, happy Monday. So I am doing a solo episode this week. We are going to be talking all about, guess what, inductions. I think most of you guys know by now that if you're listening to this on the Monday that it comes out, we are getting ready to release our new induction course um, this weekend. All of us at Mommy Labor Nurse have been working really hard on it the last few months, and we're just really excited to to put it out and make it available for you guys finally. So yeah, I figured I would hop on here and do a whole episode dedicated to induction. I know a lot of you guys have lots of questions about inductions. That's kind of why we came out with the induction course um, to begin with, because there is so many unknowns and just so many questions that we get just generally around inductions and how to prep your body for labor and just, you know, everything that kind of goes along with that. Personally, too, this is the first podcast episode that I'm recording in my new home office. Woohoo. <laughs> if you guys have been keeping up, um, I moved, I guess, a couple weeks ago now and got the office set up this week and everything's looking pretty good in here. I have some more things to do. I think I'm going to like paint the walls and I don't know, I might paint the ceiling or do something real fancy with the ceiling or I don't know. I'm just excited about it. So it's fun to be in my own space that I know is going to be my own space. And there's going to be a nice baby gate up <laughs> up near the uh, door. So no children are allowed to really come in and, and approach. <laughs> um, so yeah, super excited about recording uh, in the new Mommy Labor Nurse Home Office. So yeah, this episode, we're going to be talking all about spontaneous labor versus inductions and why spontaneous labor is typically preferred. Um, We'll talk about medical inductions as well and what that entails. And then I figure I would go over some things that you can do through your pregnancy to kind of prep yourself for labor because that's really important too and that's stuff that we have in the course. And then I'll probably finish off and talk about what I personally did uh, with both of my boys um, to get myself into labor. So without further ado, let's chat about inductions. You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, where we firmly believe in the power of education when it comes to giving birth. Tune in each week as we dive into pregnancy-related topics, expert interviews, and a variety of birth stories. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Please see mommylabornurse.com slash disclaimer for more details. And now, here's your host, educator, registered nurse, and fellow mom, Liesl Teen. Wondering what you need to do to stay on track during each week of pregnancy? Not sure what you need to be learning or researching along the way? I can help. Sign up for our free weekly pregnancy series to get tips, advice, and resources tailored to your exact week of pregnancy sent straight to your inbox every week. Sign up at mommylabornurse.com slash I am pregnant to get your first email today. See you in your inbox real soon. 
All right, guys, let's get right into this episode all about induction. So I figure I would start off this episode with talking to you guys about just some some stats on induction and when people go into labor and all that good stuff. So first off, just how if you think about your baby and how all babies reach different milestones at different ages, like some babies roll over at six months of age, some babies roll over at two months of age, some babies roll over at four months of age, some babies walk at, you know, 14 months, nine months, like there's such a wide variation. But just because a baby walks at nine months versus 14 months, so just how every baby's kind of ready to roll over at a certain time, at a different time, or walk at a different time, um, every baby is ready to be born at a slightly different time, okay? So some babies are going to be want to want to be born early, right? Like early, early, like 20-some weeks, and then some babies are going to just sit there and cook until about 42 weeks, and that's just, you know, how it goes. Typically, the most reliable sign that baby is ready to be born safely into this world is when labor begins on its own when you are full term and when we talk about full term we say that full term is after 37 weeks of pregnancy 37 to 42 weeks of pregnancy we usually like to have babies get to about 39 weeks of pregnancy we've seen more babies have health problems when they're born earlier than 39 weeks so knowing that, that 39 weeks is kind of that sweet, that sweet spot where we don't really want to have C-sections that are planned before then unless there is a real medical need for them or inductions before 39 weeks unless there is a really, really, you know, necessary medical need for them. They've actually changed the full term term now to mean between 39 and 40 weeks instead of where it used to be 37 like any time after 37 weeks that's still technically full term okay if you make it to 37 weeks but it's just called something different and we call it early term all right so going back to term so 39 weeks a lot of t- the big thing that comes up when people talk about inductions is this study that came out I think it's been a few years now, um, the ARRIVE study that looked at, it looked at a few different things. I actually just looked it up. It was from March 2014 to August 2017, and there were 6,100 women who were randomized at 41 different hospitals, one of them being my hospital that I currently work at. And so out of these 6,100 women, about half of them, about 3,000 of them were assigned to the induction group, the induction of labor group, and then the other 3,000 were assigned to the expected, they call it expected management group. Basically, they went into labor on their own. And what they found was actually pretty interesting. Um, So first of all, they found, first of all, the reason why they did it was they wanted to see if elective induction at 39 weeks gestation compared with expected management, just seeing expected management means just seeing if you'll go into labor on your own. Uh, They wanted to see those different, those two different uh, groups of people with first time moms 
Um, if that, if the induction people, the people who are getting induced, if that reduces the risk of perinatal issues, mortality, uh, and neonatal mortality. So, you know, issues with health issues with mom and health issues with baby. And so what they found, um, after doing this study was that in the induction of labor group, the need for neonatal respiratory support was significantly less. Okay. It was uh, respiratory support, uh, needing respiratory support was 4.2% in the expected management group versus 3% in the, and that doesn't sound like a lot, but I mean, it's a, it was a large study, so it is. They reviewed a few other different things, um, like whether or not uh, baby had meconium aspiration syndrome or seizures or, you know, their APGAR scores. And there were slight differences between the two groups, but the biggest one worth noting was this respiratory support, um, needing respiratory support within the first 72 hours. And that was a fairly, fairly big difference between the two you know, the two groups. And then when we talk about maternal issues, so this is the one that, you know, people really like to talk about is the C-section differences. So it actually showed that in the expected management group, there were a higher number of moms who needed C-sections, first-time moms who needed C-sections, 22.2% versus 18.6% in the induction of labor group. So that is pretty surprising because, you know, we've always kind of thought that inductions probably do increase, you know, your need for C-sections for a C-section because it is an intervention. We talk about interventions and the cascade of interventions. So a lot of people were, you know, kind of shocked that there was this, this difference. Another thing that it showed that it actually was a was a pretty big difference, which makes a lot of sense, um, was a maternal difference of preeclampsia, gestational hypertension. There were a lot more people in the expected management group versus the intra versus the um, induction group that had preeclampsia or that had gestational hypertension. Which that makes a lot of sense to me because typically the more pregnant you are, if you have blood pressure issues, you know, the more severe, the more likely you're going to have more severe blood pressure issues, the more pregnant that you get. And that's a reason why we induce moms earlier, you know, because of their blood pressure. So that makes sense to me why, you know, those two are different, obviously, but the C-section one, you know, that's interesting to me. But I know it just went on a tangent. Um, This information is important because it did show that, you know, there are some real benefits to possibly inducing, electively inducing moms at 39 weeks, um, because it possibly can reduce the likelihood of having a C-section. So, you know, it's going to take a lot more than this just one study, even though it was a large study, to change standard of practice. Like, you know, just because this study came out doesn't mean that every single mom, once you hit 39 weeks of pregnancy, um, needs to get induced, but it just kind of, you know, gives a different dialogue in your prenatal care too. So if you're interested in being induced, it's more of like, Hey, if you would like to be induced, there was this study that came out that said it could possibly, you know, decrease your likelihood of having a C-section, but you know, it's at 39 weeks. And so then it's a more of a conversation with your provider. 
with that said, you know, there still are obviously a lot of good reasons why moms um, would not want to be electively induced at 39 weeks. So some of the reasons why spontaneous labor is certainly preferred over an induced labor um, are just, first of all, you stay in the hospital a little bit longer when you're induced. Typically, especially if you're a first-time mom, you know, you have to come in and kind of prep your cervix first and then get Pitocin, and it can take, take a long time for the Pitocin to work. They have found that women who are induced are more likely to request epidurals to manage the pain. And if you're thinking of not getting an epidural, you know, maybe an elective induction is is not, you know, something that you want to consider. There's also different policies at different hospitals too. So I think that's worth mentioning because some hospitals operate a little bit differently and manage their inductions a little bit differently and they'll you know kind of rush them or they will not rush them (laughs) um so I think it's worth I think it's still goes back to being with a practice that you feel comfortable with and you feel like your provider hears you and understands you and you trust all right so now let's talk about medical inductions and kind of you know briefly kind of what to expect. Um, So there are a few different things that your provider could do to induce your labor. Typically with first-time moms, we'll go, let's go over like a typical first-time mom scenario because I think that's, that's what most people are wondering about. So if you're a first-time mom, usually if your cervix, usually if you're a first-time mom, your cervix, if you're being induced, you know, even at 41 weeks of pregnancy, um, your cervix can still be pretty, you know, not ready for labor, Um, high, thick, and closed. So if you are being induced and your cervix is not really prepped very much, it's not open, it's not thin, it's not soft, then we're going to have to get it uh, a little bit open and a little bit soft and a little bit uh, a little bit thinner before we start Pitocin, which is the main medication that they use, typically use, um, to get you into labor. So what that process looks like is kind of depends, like I said, where every, every place is going to be a little bit different, but usually takes a while (laughs) to prep your cervix. Um, sometimes, sometimes it's, it's short, only a few hours. Sometimes it's like 12 or 14 hours, um, that you're prepping your cervix before you even start Pitocin. So typically with first time moms, what we have them do is they come into the hospital the night before and they'll either get a medication that is inserted into their cervix, into your vagina near your cervix, um, to help prep that cervix and get it softer and more open a little bit and just a little bit like kind of more anterior, a little bit further down. Um, Or they will place, or your provider will place something called a Foley bulb into your cervix. And that is similar to medication in the way that it works, but it's just manually dilating your cervix and manually kind of thinning and softening up your cervix. So this is really important um, to do before we start Pitocin on you, because if we were just to start Pitocin without prepping your cervix at all, first of all, it's going to take a lot longer, okay, usually, <laughs> um, because your cervix is just not quite ready, okay? So 
you know, that's the first thing. It would just take a lot longer. And then the second thing is it probably would be a lot less effective, okay? Because we're probably gonna need a lot more Pitocin to get you going and it's gonna take longer and complications can arise. So that's why a lot of the times if your cervix is still pretty closed and thick, and especially if you're a first time mom, you've never had a baby before, they want to do like a prepping agent before you get this Pitocin. Okay. So once you get this prepping agent and this is all, you know, done, maybe you've gotten a Foley bulb and that comes out in the morning after sleeping at the hospital, or you've gotten this medication and now you're starting to have a little bit of, you know, kind of cramping and they check you and your cervix is a little bit more, you know, thin and open. Then we get the Pitocin started and the Pitocin is just an IV medication that goes through, you know, you need an IV, goes through your IV and it works similarly to the oxytocin that your own body produces during labor if you were to go into labor spontaneously, but it's man-made, it's synthetic, and we give it to you through your IV. So it works you know, pretty similarly in, in that it gets your body to start contracting, it gets your uterus to start having contractions, painful contractions, and then we just kind of watch and wait. Um, we have you on the monitor the whole time, an external monitor to start off. Um, and we're watching baby, making sure baby is doing okay the whole time, you know, that you're on this Pitocin and also making sure that your contractions are not too close together. If baby were ever in distress or your contractions, you know, are, are way too close together, then we always have the ability to turn the Pitocin down or turn the Pitocin off. So yeah, once we get the Pitocin started in the morning, then it's just kind of a waiting game. And eventually what will happen is we, you know, up the Pitocin until you get your contractions to where you're in good active labor and they are changing your cervix and they're usually about, you know, two to three minutes apart, 60 to 90 seconds, about two to three minutes apart. And they're at, and really the important thing is they're, at, they're starting to actively change your cervix. And once that's happening, we don't increase the Pitocin anymore. Okay. We just kind of let it ride. Some, sometimes we even turn it off because sometimes after having Pitocin for a long time, um, you know, for a few hours, it kicks your body, it kicks your own body into spontaneous labor and you just, you know, contract on your own. So yeah, once we get you into active labor and we're watching your baby on the monitor, you know, maybe you do request an epidural and you get your epidural. And a lot of times people talk about, well, you know, what about breaking your water? Like what's, you know, does your water break on its own or is that part of induction too? So it kind of depends. So typically with my patients, um, with my induction patients, a, a percentage of them, small percentage of them, once we get them kind of, you know, into more active labor and they're having contractions on the monitor after starting the Pitocin, they break their water spontaneously on their own. Um, but I would say a majority of them, what usually happens is we get you on Pitocin and you're contracting effectively and you get into nice active labor. And then your provider says, okay, um, you know what I think would be just the icing on the cake to this is to break your water and get that baby to come down even more and put even more pressure on your cervix and get you going, you know, even, even more effectively. So that's usually the next step is that your water gets broken by your provider 
It can happen before you get an epidural or after if you request an epidural. Most people like it to be done after getting an epidural because a lot of times once your water has broken, whether or not your provider breaks it on, on you know, artificially breaks it, or if you spontaneously break it, um, your your sorry, not your Pitocin, your contractions can hurt a lot more. And that's just, um, that just makes sense. Because if you think about a hard head, a hard baby head versus like a soft kind of water balloon pressing against your pelvis and pressing against your back and pressing against your cervix, um, which one is going to probably hurt less? The softer kind of water balloon. So that's why typically once you get your water broken, um, your contractions, contractions usually hurt a little bit more. All right. So once we got you into nice active labor and you're contracting and maybe your water's broken, then yeah, you just kind of deliver just, just like anybody, you know, somebody who wasn't being induced. Um, that's really, you know, the gist of it. Postpartum wise, um, it, there's not a whole lot of differences after you have your baby, you know, if you were induced or not induced. Sometimes we do see moms who have been induced, especially if they are having Pitocin for a really, really long time, like days and days of Pitocin. Um, they do have an increased risk of hemorrhaging and having bleeding afterwards, you know, an, an increase in bleeding after afterwards. So we're on the lookout for that. But if this is a mom who has been on a few hours of Pitocin, maybe she, you know, it's your first baby and you came in the night before and then you get in, you know, you get Pitocin in the morning and then you deliver, you know, by night shift or something, yeah, postpartum is usually usually pretty similar to someone who, you know, has not been induced. All right, so let's transition now into talking about some things that you can do to prep your body for labor or kind of more importantly, um, if you were to need to be induced medically um, towards the end of your pregnancy. So if you remember, I just talked about prepping your cervix using a prepping agent for your cervix before we do the Pitocin if you're being induced. So one of the things that I like to really encourage moms to do is to do some things to on your own to prep your cervix so that if you come in for your induction, your cervix is not a hard ball, <laughs> a hard, you know, super hard, super not prepped at all, you know, very, very closed and thick and high cervix. There are quite a few things that you can do to encourage your cervix to kind of prep yourself. Sometimes you don't need to do anything. And, you know, sometimes your cervix just kind of, kind of preps itself and you go into spontaneous labor, right? Um, but I like to encourage moms to do these things um, because, it, you know, if you come in, if you come in, especially if you're a first time mom, if you come in with a cervix that is three centimeters, is thin, you know, 80% thin or 90% thin, and, you know, your baby's, baby's nice and low and engaged versus if you come in with a thick, with a closed, thick and high cervix, um, your stay is going to be you typically much shorter, you're going to need a lot less 
you know, a lot less Pitocin. We're probably not going to need any of those prepping agents. So it's going to be in your best interest if you come into the hospital, if you're being induced and your cervix is a lot more ready. Okay. It's not to say that it's not going to work. Your induction is not going to work if you come in with a closed, thick and high cervix. Of course, that people have babies all the time with starting off with closed, thick and high cervixes, but your chances of it going the way you want it to go um, are going to be higher if you've pre- if you know your cervix is already kind of prepped. Okay. So with that said, it's good to think about prepping your cervix with the thought of like, okay, if I need to get induced, I want to, you know, it's great to have my cervix kind of already prepped on my own, but it also helps spontaneous labor too. So if you know, you start spontaneous labor on your own when your cervix has been, you know, three centimeters for a few weeks or a week or a few days and thin for a few days or a few weeks, labor's labor's probably going to go a little bit smoother and maybe it'll be a little bit faster um, because your cervix is already kind of like ripe and ready to go. If you saw a post that I shared, um, a couple, I guess a couple weeks now ago, I did a reel with some bananas and we talked about why it's easier to induce a mom that has a cervix that is like, like super ripe, like super open and maybe her water broke or she's having contractions or it's nice and thin. So that was the brown banana. Um, and then the green banana was a mom who had a cervix that is nice and super close, thick and high and not ready at all. Okay. So what I did, what I showed in the reel was a green banana, a yellow banana and a brown banana. And if you think about bananas and how easy they are to peel, a brown banana is obviously a lot easier to peel than a green banana. You can still peel a green banana, but it's just going to take a little bit more work. So that's kind of a good analogy that I like to um, tell moms when they think about induction and think about your cervix. Think about bananas, right? So it doesn't mean if your cervix is close, they can hide that it's not, you you know, you're going to be unsuccessful. It just might be a little bit harder to kind of get you into labor. And if your cervix is nice and ripe, like that brown banana, you just need a little, little, little whiff of Pitocin, (laughs) a little, little bit to get you going. All right. So let's talk about these things that you can do to prep your body for labor. Okay. First, let's talk about like some mechanical kind of thing or not mechanical, but like physical kind of things that you can do. So one of the great things is walking. Okay. Curb walking specifically. So put one foot up on the curb and the other foot on the ground. And if you look through my posts, I've done a couple posts on curb walking. Um, it's great. Curb walking is great because it gets you kind of like in an asymmetrical position and gets baby really bouncing up and down on that cervix and turning really with curb walking, we're looking for baby to turn in that ample position. That's really putting good pressure on your cervix. So curb walking can really help with engagement. Um, and when we talk about a lot of these things where I'm going to be using the word engagement, and that just means that baby, um, is, is engaged, <laughs> is engaged into your pelvis is like nice and low and ready to go into your pelvis. So 
So a lot of these things that you can do to prep your body, um, we're thinking about engagement and getting baby nice and, and, and engaged because if baby's engaged, it's likely going to get your cervix engaged and ready to go too. So curb walking is a really, really good one. Another one that I like to tell moms to do is sitting on your yoga ball. If you have one of those big yoga balls and not just, you know, sitting really bouncing up, you know, up and down really, really hard doing really deep circles or deep kind of figure eights. That's also going to really, really help get that baby in good, a good position, a good engaged position. So doing figure eights, bouncing up really nice and, you know, nice and pretty hard, um, swaying kind of side to side, doing what feels good on that birth ball. Another good one are lunges. Okay. Um, lunges and squats. (laughs) There was a post I did, I think last week where I said, uh, do, you know, if you squat 300 times a day, you're going to give birth very quickly. And that was a quote by Ina Mae Gaskin. Um, if you've read her book and of course that's a ton of squats and I don't, don't even really recommend that you do 300 squats a day. Um, but squats are great because if you think about, you know, gravity and pulling baby down, squats are just helping that baby, you know, kind of get a a lot, even more engaged into that pelvis. So squats are great. Lunges are great. Curb walking is great. Um, and bouncing on your, on your yoga ball is great. So those are all some, you know, good, good kind of physical things you can do. All right. So now let's talk about some things that you can consume. Okay. And one of the ones that I did not do, but one of the ones that uh, there has been some evidence on that has helped moms go into spontaneous labor on their own is eating dates. Okay. If you know what dates are, they're like very sweet little kind of dried pruny type fruits. They're like orangey in color. They're not my favorite, which is why I didn't eat them (laughs) with both of my pregnancies. Um, But there is literature to suggest that if you eat six dates a day, I think starting at 34, 35 weeks, something like that, maybe it's 36, don't quote me, um, you can reduce your uh, need for being induced. So you'll go into spontaneous labor sooner. And I think it also showed that your labor would be shorter. So dates are good. And then let's talk about something that's not a food. The other one that's not a food and that is evening primrose oil. Okay. And that can help, um, because that is just, it's just what it sounds like. It's little, little capsule full of evening primrose oil that you can insert into your vagina going near your cervix. And I did it, um, before I went to bed, So, you know, I wasn't walking around with a pad with oil in my underwear all day. Um, But you basically can insert that into your vagina, um, I think starting at 38-ish weeks. And that can help to soften up your cervix and has been shown to help with cervical ripening if it's done during your pregnancy to get you good for labor. So evening primrose oil, um, you can just get it at the drugstore and it's just these, like I said, it's just these little capsules. You can even take it orally, but recent evidence has shown that it's more effective if you do it vaginally. Um, some people do it orally and vaginally. Um, some people just do it vaginally, but yeah, you just get it from the drugstore. 
obviously with any of these, um, especially stuff that you take, like if you, you know, were to ingest evening primrose oil, um, we want you to talk to your provider, of course, before doing any of these things. But yeah, evening primrose oil, I did that before both of my boys and um, got the okay for my provider and she said it was okay. So I started doing it at about 38-ish weeks, I think with Walter and then with Ryland, I did it a little bit later at 39 or so weeks. So yeah, those are just some of the things. We go over a lot of other things too in our course that we're getting to come, that that is coming out in a week. Um, I go over a lot of other things that you can do. But yeah, those are just some things. Um, I'm going to briefly just end with like just all the stuff that I did when I was pregnant um, with Walter and Ryland to get myself, my own self into labor. So with Walter... Uh, a couple days before I went into labor, I did all the things, okay? I think I started off with, I woke up in the morning and I did like a really, really long walk around. I remember it was fe- it was February, so it was kind of cold. So I walked inside the mall because it was really cold. So I walked for a really long time and I power walked. And then I think I came home and I sat on my labor ball for a really long time and like bounced up and down with him. And then I ate a whole pineapple or almost a whole pineapple. Um, and then what else did I do? do I didn't see a chiropractor that was Ryland um oh and then in the middle of the day I had an acupuncture um session it's called reflexology so I had a session with a a reflexologist and they just pushed a bunch of different pressure points on my feet uh, that day (laughs) and it felt really really great so I did that and then in the evening I um, we went to a, a bar restaurant near our house that they have like really really super spicy jalapeno poppers so I ate some jalapeno poppers and then I came home and had sex um and then I kind of went to bed and was kind of crampy all night and then I woke up in labor the next day so who knows if like all of that stuff or one of those things you know really made the difference but that's what I did with Walter okay and that was like like I said a day yeah I guess it was the day before I went into labor with him a couple two days before technically I had him in the middle of the night on the second night. But, um, so then with Ryland, I did similar stuff, but I kind of did all of that stuff, um, days slash weeks before with him. Um, so the day before though, we'll talk about the day before with him. I did, I've talked about this on my podcast, but one of the things that I did differently was I did something called the mile circuit and we'll link that into this episode if you want to check that out too. But the mile circuit is basically a series of positions that you can do to kind of um, get your body, get your baby into a more optimal position for labor. Okay. Talking about that engagement that we talked about, the mile circuit is another one that you can do to really get baby super engaged. So I did that. And I also went to get my reflexology again, went to get my nice foot massage that day. Um, I think I ate some more pineapple that day during the day. Um, I don't think I had I'm trying to remember. I don't think I had sex that day, (laughs) but, um, let's see. What else did I do? Oh, we ate the jalapeno poppers that day or the day before or something. And then I ended up going into labor, um, that night with him. And it was only a few hours after doing that mile circuit. So 
that that mile circuit worked for me at least. <laughs> so yeah, like I said, if you want to know all things induction, make sure you check out our little course that's coming out, a little mini course that's coming out um, at the end of this week. All right, guys, I will catch you on the next episode. All right, so that is it for this episode of the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast. You probably follow me on Instagram because that's probably where you came from. But if you don't, head over to Instagram and follow me at mommy.labornurse for more. That is certainly where I am most active. I also now have a separate Instagram for just this podcast. So I encourage you to follow my second account at mommylabornurse.podcast as well if you want podcast updates. Again, that is at mommylabornurse.podcast. As always, you guys know that I also have a website where I have tons of articles all about pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding, newborn stuff, and more at www.mommylabornurse.com. I want to hear more from you on how much you love this episode of the podcast or how you think I can improve. So leave me a comment on one of my pictures, send me a DM, or send me an email with all the love. All right, guys, I will see you same time, same place next week.